D-E-A, out of the way. D-E-A, out of the way. D-E-A, out of the way. D-E-A, We are here in front of the DEA headquarters in Arlington, Virginia, to bring attention to the DEA's failure to open a pathway to access to psilocybin. Not one more dying patient should endure debilitating anxiety and depression when relief could be had. What do we want? Access. When do we want it? Now. What do we want? Access. When do we want it? Now. My name is Erin. I'm a stage four cancer patient. I am a mother of two. I missed very likely my last Mother's Day with them to be here. I am one of millions of patients that have legal access to these medicines and it's shameful that this agency is blocking my way. We will peacefully leave if you bring a waiver down. That is what we're here for, that is what I need, that is what I want. No one has come out since we got here from the Drug Enforcement Administration and said, here's the waiver, Aaron. You don't need to do this. Terminally ill patients don't need to stage die-ins at the DEA. Instead, we're gonna have to engage in direct action yeah. because no one in this building is doing their jobs and they've forgotten who they work for. They work for the people. We're not asking DEA to be compassionate. We're asking them to follow established law. The Right to Try Act was passed by Congress in 2018 and signed into law by Donald Trump. This is the law of the land. DEA is not following the law. There is nothing coming even close to the efficacy of these medicines to be able to alleviate the fear, the pain. Psilocybin gives people their life back in a way that allows them to enjoy what time they have left. Why are we not granting access? Welcome to the RNBC Life podcast from Share Cancer Support dedicated to exploring life with metastatic breast cancer from the perspective of us, the people living with this disease and the experts who partner with us to help make our lives better. I'm Lisa Laudico, and I'm so glad you're here since no one should face NBC alone. Today, we're wrapping up our three-part series on the potential of psilocybin-assisted therapy to alleviate the tremendous existential distress, anxiety, pain, and depression that often goes along with an MBC diagnosis. As we've covered in the first two episodes, psilocybin has been known for centuries and shown in clinical trials to bring immediate, substantial, and sustained relief to patients and others suffering existential distress. In the first episode, our colleague, Dr. Paula Jane, spoke with Emory University researcher and psychiatrist Dr. Bodhi Dunlop about the history and promising current testing of psilocybin in rigorous clinical trials. In our second episode, we spoke with two women with breast cancer who had legal access to psilocybin-assisted therapy. We spoke to them about their experiences before and after treatment. We hope you'll listen to the entire series and note the different ways to get involved in advocacy at the end of today's episode. This is a very important option for patients in need. Now, here's my colleague, Linda Weatherby, to lead us into today's episode. 
Today we speak first with Aaron Baldeschweiler, the patient you heard in our opening, speaking at a peaceful protest at Drug Enforcement Agency, or DEA, offices on May 9, 2022. Aaron has been living with NBC for two years and has an 18- and 15-year-old. She is also a patient petitioner on a legal case brought against the DEA along with her doctor, Sunil Agarwal, of the Ames Institute in Seattle, to open access to psilocybin for qualifying patients. The case is complicated. It is based on right-to-try laws enacted in 41 states and nationally in 2018, which guarantee patients with terminal illness access to investigational therapies, which have cleared Phase 1 safety trials. Psilocybin currently sits on Schedule 1 of the Controlled Substances Act, which the DEA enforces. It is currently unavailable and illegal to access psilocybin for most patients. Aaron's case is the first time a Schedule 1 drug has come up for request under right-to-try laws, meaning a request for waiver and access had to go through the DEA. The lawsuit here asserted that psilocybin should be available to patients under state and federal right-to-try legislation and FDA rules, which supersede DEA authority. But the DEA is standing in the way and overstepping its authority in continuing to block access under the Controlled Substances Act. In early 2021, Aaron and Dr. Agarwal filed a right-to-try request for waiver to access psilocybin with the DEA so Aaron could receive this therapy in Dr. Agarwal's controlled practice. The DEA denied that initial request outright, so Aaron and Dr. Agarwal filed their lawsuit through their attorney, Catherine Tucker, seeking a reversal of the DEA's denial. The case was dismissed by the Ninth Circuit on a technicality in February 2022. Since that time, the waiver request has gone back and forth between Aaron's attorney and the DEA. On June 28th of 2022, the DEA issued a letter that their original denial from early 2021 will stand as their final position on the matter. Aaron, Dr. Agarwal, and Catherine Tucker are in the process of replying to that letter and intend to return to court in the Ninth Circuit if there is no change to the DEA's denial beforehand. In a second strategy to help patients gain access to psilocybin therapy, Catherine also filed a petition to reschedule psilocybin and move it from Schedule 1 to Schedule 2 under the Controlled Substances Act. There, it would still be regulated by the DEA, but available through most providers treating advanced illness and cancers like Aaron's. Rescheduling would be an effective solution here and has the support of many experts, but it can take a very long time, even decades. Of special note, there is now a petition calling for DEA action on access to psilocybin at righttotrysilocybin.com. Catherine Tucker is also working with former Senator Tom Daschle's government affairs group, the Daschle Group, to bring federal elected attention to the matter. We provide links to all of this work in our episode notes on our website, ournbclife.org. With that long summary of a complicated matter, let's hear now from the patient on the front lines of it all, Erin Baldeschweiler followed by her attorney, Catherine Tucker. Here is Erin's interview with our colleague, Paula Jane. So my name is Erin Baldeschweiler, and I am currently 50 years old. And two years ago, I was diagnosed with stage four triple negative breast cancer. And I'll be honest, you know, <laughs> the cancer was just another test, but the years leading up to that, I had gone through quite a bit of 
um, changed. God. So I went through a divorce, which is like a death in its own respect, you know, to move away from your children and your family and yeah. the entire life that you built. So that was the biggest emotional test of my life. That was 2017, working through all of that and just, you know, restarting my life and figuring all that stuff out. And so that I would say was really my darkest time of my life. I do a lot of self-introspective work. And so I do a lot of reading. I do a lot of writing and just trying to figure out this whole idea of living a life with purpose. Gone through a lot of therapy and done a lot of that. So, and then it's feeling pretty good. Like, okay, you know, I can do this and I can get through the anger and let go of the, the bitterness and all these emotional and mental toxicities that really just aggravate and feed, say, depression and anxiety. You know, we can't, yeah. we can't escape the pain. So mm -hmm. it's a matter of learning how to just really face it and release it, you know, and let it go. Oftentimes we can have denial and try to repress it or bury it or whatever the narrative might be, but it doesn't actually go away. Mm -hmm. It's still stuck. So I had done a lot of personal work just on my own, like I said, through books and just being isolated and finding solace and solitude. And then fast forward to March 2020 and I felt a lump and over the course of two months, it had grown to the size of a golf ball. And obviously, like the moment I discovered it, I scheduled an appointment, went to the doctor again. You've all been diagnosed. So it was uh, the series of tests and biopsies and trying to determine the primary source, et cetera, et cetera. I had done my regular routine checkups, but nonetheless, when they did the scan, uh, it was metastatic and it was everywhere. You know, I mean, it's lung, sternum, ovary, breast, adrenals, bone, a lot. It was in a lot of places. Yeah. And so it was very aggressive. But nonetheless, I had tested, I had 100% expression for a PDL1 protein, mm -hmm. and there was an immunotherapy that paired up with that. And that's what I've been on for the two years, you know. That's wonderful. Yeah, it's great. And so it's been well managed up until October. And since then, scans have shown that there have been progression. And just like COVID, it can mutate and uh, become treatment right. resistant. When I was originally diagnosed, they wanted to do a combination of this immunotherapy along with a chemo. And I just did not want to do the chemo. They mm -hmm. essentially said, statistically, you have two years to live. There's no cure. Our focus is just to maintain the highest quality of life. And there you go. But I've been very, very fortunate that, like I said, the immunotherapy I've had has been wonderful in that I haven't had side effects. You know, I feel fine. I have my hair. It's every two weeks. And so now I'm facing this next stage and really having to come to terms with the fact that, um, I mean, I'll just be honest with you. I don't, I don't think I'm going to beat this. You know, I mean, I, I like to think I'm really positive and all of that, but it's, it's bad. You know, it's a bad disease and, and these are all very personal things. You know, do you do everything in your nature to try to live a little bit longer, right? And so for me, it's always been kind of this balancing question of is quantity over quality really better? And for me, it's not, you know, and so it's yeah. 
trying to decide to add a second line chemo. And there's a part of me that's like, I'll try anything, but I don't think I'm going to try it. You know, I, I think I'm just going to maintain my treatment as it is. At some point, that'll stop and just kind of let this take its natural course. And um, that sucks, right? Because I'm 50. <laughs> my daughter just turned 18. So I was able to see, you know, that kind of milestone, mm -hmm. but my son's 15. And, um, you know, facing the reality of my own mortality and then having to say goodbye, knowing that I'm leaving them young. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. But like death is built in, right? No one yeah. can escape it. It's part of 100% guarantee. And maybe this is where the psilocybin comes in for me, where I, I believe that life is just truly more of a spiritual journey, you know, and it's one of trying to connect with this inner spiritual essence, kind of this inner knowing, you know, this part of us that is just kind of nothing but pure love and an energy. If you're able to use, you know, a natural substance um, as such as psilocybin, which has been used indigenously as a sacrament, as medicine, as, you know, a means of opening this gateway to a higher energy field, you know, and um, because I think that is where we all return to, right, upon our death. And so if I can experience that while I'm physically alive, I'm open to that, right? I mean, it's all about the experience. And um, in that book, The Psilocybin Mushroom Companion, in the 60s, there was a Good Friday experiment and mm -hmm. where the religious students, um, psilocybin. And, and basically, the, the biggest takeaway for me in that was, you know, how many of them reported it being the most singularly significant spiritual experience of their lives, right? And then when they mm -hmm. were followed up, like 30 years later, that still held true, you know? And so, yeah. that's what I'm about seeking of, of purpose and meaning and mental clarity, emotional ease, spiritual insight, you know, I want to have it, right? Because for me, that's, that is what is going to release anxiety, depression, sadness. I'm just struck by the fact that you were diagnosed, it sounds like de novo, sounds like you never had an early breast cancer diagnosis, is that correct? Right. Yeah. So you were diagnosed de novo right after a divorce in the midst of a global pandemic. Yet it seems that within these past two years, you have kind of gotten to the heart of the matter. I'm just struck how, if you're willing to share, how did you get there so quickly? It's not quick. That's the thing. Yeah. Literally, it's been 50 years of discovery and seeking. Mm -hmm. And very more specifically, I would probably say the last seven years. And really shortly after I had my children, I love my kids. I was meant to have them because they have taught me, but I've never dreamed of being married and having mm -hmm. children. And when they came along, I was like, what did I do? <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of people feel that way, but it's yeah. not socially acceptable to say. <laughs> right? And so, yeah. and, and again, that's part of that lemming line, right? Oh, you're dating. And then of course you get married. And then of course you have kids. And again, everything was meant to be for me, but bringing life into this world is sacred and a huge responsibility. And knowing that I literally cannot, I cannot protect my children from pain and suffering. They cannot avoid it. So 
to equip them in whatever way I can with the skills and the tools of knowing it's going to come at you. And again, finding that spiritual center and knowing that will protect you or not even protect, but like a refuge guide. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. that's, it's find that sacred space right within you. So this was not overnight. That's the thing. For me, it's all about personal and in the last, I'd say, seven to 10 years, spiritual growth. That is what I'm mm-hmm. seeking. But no, it's not easy. It's been seven years. It's weird, but it's when you face those darkest times of your life. And for me, when I hit that point and I tell people it was almost, it was like my breakdown really was a breakthrough and all of the illusion and all of the fear, like everything just became really crystal clear in a sense of like, I am so doing it wrong and just really having to work through the anger and the pain and the bitterness and just face it. For me, I'm very much consciousness. I'm about it. And I know that there's layers to it and there's the shadow side of our natures and our lower nature and then striving to reach these higher more subtle frequencies of pure love like a godlike love unconditional love universal love and just finding that bridge to find that courage to really face the pain and the fears and get through it i've been to a lot of therapy when i face that dark side i wanted to live i was like i think some people might turn to a sense of worthlessness or you know life's not worth living and i felt the absolute complete opposite it takes a lot of time a lot of practice a lot of effort and i feel very blessed that i had that time to be able to work through it and stuff but no it's not easy and it's frankly not at all for the faint of heart that said It's very empowering and it just opens my heart to be able to actually feel a sense of peace as opposed to chaos and panic. Yeah. I was struck. We talked to a psychiatrist actually earlier who has run a psilocybin assisted psychotherapy in a population of treatment resistant depression. So not in the cancer space, but when we asked him what he wanted viewers to know about it, what you're saying about being willing to face the dark. That was what he wanted us to share. This is not about a fun high. This is about facilitated therapy that encourages you to go inward and face the kind of hard stuff. So we're we're not talking about something that's fun. (laughs) We're talking about something that could be healing. How did you find out about psilocybin? How did you get onto this path? I personally use cannabis. I think it definitely calms me and things like that. So when I was diagnosed, I was seeking experiences, right? So I was referred and discovered Dr. Leanna Standish, and she is co-founder of AIMS Institute, which is how I was referred to Dr. Agarwal. And they're doing like ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, Mm -hmm. which I have done. And Dr. Agarwal invited me actually to participate. He reached out and this was maybe a few months after my diagnosis and said, hey, there's this case that I'm working on because I'm a palliative care doctor. I want to be able to provide my patients any kind of medicine that shows promise and again, relieving end of life trauma, right? So anxiety, depression, Mm -hmm. fear, and would you be willing to join the effort as a petitioner and stuff? And I was Mm -hmm. like, yeah, (laughs) heck yeah. You know, and so I didn't even know about right to try laws. 
I knew about psilocybin and magic mushrooms, but I, I guess just more on kind of that recreation side of things. But now over the last couple of years, I've really not only the clinical promising aspect of it, but more just that sacrament side of things and how it has been used again for thousands and thousands of years in indigenous cultures. Right. So <laughs> I let the medicine find me in a sense. Right. So you did, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you were willing to walk that path when it opened up to you. For people who may not be familiar, would you be up for giving a brief summary of the case that's being brought? Yeah. Um <laughs> <laughs> Yes, there are what are called right to try laws, and they exist at the federal level and the state level. And these laws essentially are kind of fast passes for people that are facing the end of their life, right? There's a number of checkboxes that you have to check to be eligible. But in, in a sense, what it does is it's allowing patients to have access to investigational medicines that have already cleared phase one trials. And in our particular instance, we're wanting to use psilocybin, which is a schedule one substance, but it is currently undergoing, you know, clinical trials. So really the whole, the whole point of these laws is time. Like patients don't have mm-hmm. time to wait eight to 10 years for full FDA approval on a medicine. Bottom line, there's laws and I, I apply and, but in order to actually get the medicine needed the okay from the DEA. And so mm-hmm. we reached out to the DEA pretty standard no <laughs> you know we're not going to accommodate and so then i went to court it went before the ninth circuit court in like early september and mm-hmm. the three judges sat on that for five months mm-hmm. and ultimately they came back and it was like a technicality which is what the dea is like well, they asked for guidance not a final decision so you shouldn't even be hearing this case it's like you know we went to them asking how can we obtain this? What are you going to do to right. accommodate right to try laws? They said nothing. And ultimately, that's what the court came back with in early February was we can't rule on this case. We don't have jurisprudence, which is like, to me, so ridiculous and like a colossal waste of our time. Are you even listening to what's going on? People are dying. You know, right. they just want access to this medicine and you're going to sit on this on a technicality. Like you could have said that immediately and you even did during arguments okay nonetheless so then <laughs> so you can tell i'm irritated one second. Right? Okay. yeah no that's <laughs> what i want to ask you is how was it to put your time and energy into something like this and then not to have them even really consider it but to dismiss it on a technicality yeah it's incredibly frustrating if you want to talk about poking the bear and if you're trying to make my stress and anxiety and depression worse you're doing a good job you know i mean frustration and anger is at the root of all of it and i mean i think this is across the board too right it's like the systems what's the point of having these laws and this legislation we're passing these laws but then you go to the agency and so they basically ignore the law. They go, no, this law trumps that law. Or we're going to go with this 50-year-old Controlled Substances Act. It's maddening. It is absolutely maddening. And um, I think what's so hard about it, too, is that if you look at the lit on psilocybin, it's, it's very promising. And right now, there's a huge gap. Yeah. palliative care doctors can help us treat physical pain yeah 
and God bless them scientists and researchers mm-hmm. who are bringing meds that can give us longer time. Right. What nobody is giving us is effective medicine to help with all of the emotional distress that anybody who is facing a prognosis of early death, we don't have anything to help us with that. Right. But actually we do, but we're being kept from it on a technicality. Yeah. So then it sounds like the legal team has turned, they filed two other. Yes. I'm not a lawyer, so, so I'm yeah, the no. wrong, so, but so, like actions. <laughs> yeah. So essentially they're like, fine, we're going to drop this case. We're not going to appeal it. But they like the next day came in and said, fine, let's reschedule this substance. Now we're going to go this route and we're going to ask you for a final action, a final decision and really reschedule it, make it a schedule two. Dr. Agarwal has that license. I believe that's what the ketamine is under. And it is very interesting, right? Because this, uh, again, 50-year-old Controlled Substances Act, which frankly, let's be honest, it was used as a political tool, a ploy, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that like psilocybin, these medicines were um, extensively studied in the 50s with a lot of promise in PSTD mm-hmm. patients with other like LSD and things of that nature. But then the war happened and then you get the the culture. Fine, we'll make it illegal. We're going to stop all research on it and we're just going to just ban it. And fortunately, now we've had this resurgence of interest. For people who are interested in psilocybin, mm-hmm. other metastatic breast cancer patients, right. what is the current access to it in the U.S.? Underground, as long as it remains on that Schedule One substance list. It's kind of like cannabis, right? And Oregon was the first state to make it legal for therapy purposes, psilocybin mm-hmm. in particular. But I think what's happening is that there's a huge push to decriminalize it. It's mm-hmm. not a crime to want to heal and relieve anxiety. It, sh- it should not be a crime, right? So just like cannabis, that's kind of where we're at with the psilocybin. And on the Schedule One substance, they define that as being a substance that shows high potential for abuse, high potential for addiction, and no medical purpose. Mm. That really does not apply psilocybin. And in fact, there's a study that shows it's actually highly not addictive. And frankly, if you want to look at those definitions, what's alcohol, tobacco, and caffeine? I mean, right. those are legal, right? Billion dollar industries. So- and I think it comes back to that point about people are not seeking this as a way to escape. People are seeking this to work through. Right. To face the demons. Right. It's not <laughs> trying to kick back at the end of a long day. We're not talking about microdosing. Right. What we're talking about is, you know, a heroic dose, a large dose in a very controlled setting where people are doing the work right. of facing mortality, of facing anxiety, of facing fear and anger so that we can bring more peace into the time that we have. Right. Right. And that's the point that I don't think is being clearly communicated. It's a mindset thing for me where we really want to heal, right? We want to heal. I am pretty much come to the term that the cancer in my body is probably not going to get healed, you know, and cured physically. Mm -hmm. And I do a lot of reading with regards to like Native American traditional knowing systems in that vein medicine is anything that will heal our mind, our body, and our spirit, right? And so there is a huge gap. The modern medicine field, and thank God for it, right? Because this immunotherapy has given me a quality of life. Like, I'm not bagging modern medicine. 
but like you said, a huge gap. There's four spokes to this wheel in my mind, mind, emotion, spirit, and then our physical body that's housing this. So I want to jump back again to what you were saying about decriminalization. There are places out there where you can get psilocybin, either synthetic or natural. But when we're talking about substances that are illegal, what does that mean for patients? And especially for patients of color to not have legal, safe access to something that could help us. It's interesting. So in the case, you know, when it was being presented, we're not even asking for like deregulation. We want to keep this safe. You guys are the Mm -hmm. regulators. You have these means already in place for other types of medicines. We just want to know how you're going to accommodate this. You know what I mean? So we don't Mm -hmm. keep it in the underground and illicit and illegal and people aren't just calling up somebody and God knows what you're getting. Right. The whole point is let's work together so that we can ensure that it's done safely and Mm -hmm. regulate it. Listen, when people feel desperate, they do desperate things. We don't want that. That's the whole point of the right to try laws, again, existing at the federal and the state level. The whole point of my participating in this is so that it really can open a pathway. There is a lot of potential benefit for this to heal mental, emotional, spiritual pain and suffering in our particular instance for people with terminal illnesses. But the potential really is huge. What would it mean to you? What impact do you think it would have on your life if you could have legal access? To this therapy. To circle back around to the beginning, I'm looking for spiritually significant experiences. So if I can have legal access to this and I can do it in the safety and comfort of either clinical or even in my home with a, a trained psychotherapist and a trip sitter, mm-hmm. it'd be huge. It's a game changer, right? And to be able to do it without the stigma of knowing that it's still illegal or just release and clear the way, clear a path to allow people to choose for themselves this option. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing. This is not something that is for everybody. It might not speak to everybody. Well, I don't want to take that. It's okay, then don't. But do you want that option restricted? That's my whole thing. Mm -hmm. Here's three options. If a government agency takes two of them off the table, like you're making my choice for me. That's not at all okay. And it assumes that those other two options are actually effective. Right. You know, I think that's one of the biggest problems is you talked about doing traditional psychology, psychiatry, and it has not been as effective. No. You know, and so it's not even three equal choices. Right, right. And you had mentioned too, you know, how did you do it so quickly? But I think too, like these medicines, they allow us to perhaps collapse timeframes. If you could sit and have one session, one eight-hour intense experience on a psilocybin, releasing that pain and suffering, or even just facing darkness and what is deeply rooted in pain and suffering, you have this release for six months. The lid is longer than that. It's years. Right. People have sustained (laughs) effects for years. And and when we're thinking about a limited lifetime left to us. Right. How can we put a value on what having more peace in every day that we have? Totally. And you were talking earlier about us all taking responsibility for ourselves. Basically, 
but we don't have to suffer like this. Mm-hmm. I think that's the main thing we don't talk about. I've been in so many NBC support groups. I, I wish there was more discussion about how truly distressing it is to live with the knowledge that your life is going to be shorter yeah. than you hoped it would be. Yeah. And I think it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't. I think it's, it's this release of pain and suffering. And that was what opens up our space to really feel peace and feel blessed and to feel the joys in the little things. Right. And that's what I've kind of told my kids. Right. I'm like, listen, of course I want to beat this. Of course I'd like to stick around for 20 years. That might not happen, but we do have the opportunity to love the time that we do have together. You know what I mean? And this kind of medicine can help relieve and dissolve pain and suffering and get us closer to those feelings of peace and satisfaction. That's where everybody needs to be, you know, instead of fear and shadow land. But it's facing the fear in the dark. You, that you don't get a fast pass that. I'm just going to tell you, you can't <laughs> skip past the dark, you know, that's, that's what you have to face. We are just such at the beginning stages of all of this. And it's let me find a voice. And if I can be any little minor part of opening that doorway and clearing a path, that to me is an honor. The half of all that. of us, I am saying a gigantic thank you. Oh, thanks. Truly, <laughs> truly. Yeah. It's healing. We want to heal. I think that's the thing. I don't want to mask the symptoms. I don't want to just take a pill that I have to take every day and it just really just covers it up. I want to heal. Let's move into the legal case now. This interview was conducted before the DEA issued its final decision in a letter on June 28th, confirming its original denial of Aaron and Dr. Agarwal's initial waiver request. The case will, in all likelihood, end up back in court in a few weeks. Catherine Tucker has spent almost her entire legal career of 35 years working as a legal advocate for patient rights. Beginning with work on Washington State's death with dignity law in the 90s, Catherine has been a tireless ally on patient rights and assistance for people with advanced and terminal illness. Here is our interview with Catherine. Catherine, thank you again for doing this today. Would you be able to give us a layman's understanding of the right to try laws in the United States today? Yes. Yes. And since I'm speaking to cancer advocates, this bit of history will be of interest to your audience because the right to try swept this country like a firestorm in the wake of a case about a young woman dying of cancer whose name was Abigail Burroughs. And her father wanted to be able to access an investigational experimental drug to save his daughter's life. And he failed and she died. And in the wake of that sad family tragedy, the dad formed a group called Abigail Alliance. And the Abigail Alliance went into federal court to argue that dying patients have a federal constitutional right to access investigational drugs to save their lives. And that would be protected as a matter of liberty and privacy and medical decision-making autonomy under the United States Constitution. They 
won that case at the D.C. Circuit, but then it went on bonk, meaning the entire D.C. Circuit reviewed it and reversed it. And then the United States Supreme Court declined review. And that was the end of the road for that court case. But as sometimes happens, when a court case reaches its end, if the advocates didn't achieve their objective, they can use that to go into legislatures to achieve the same result. And that's what happened with the right to try movement. So in the wake of that court defeat, and with the assistance of a nonprofit advocacy group called the Goldwater Institute, laws were drafted and introduced across the country, first in state legislatures, where they were widely immediately passed with bipartisan and often unanimous support, and then in the federal legislature as well. And what these laws, which are called right to try laws, are intended to do is exactly as Abigail's father wanted to achieve for his daughter, access to an investigational drug that remains under investigation that appears to be beneficial And the patient doesn't have the time to wait for the long, slow process of new drug approval to wend its way to completion. So if a drug has passed a phase one clinical trial with the FDA and it remains under investigation, that drug is to be available for therapeutic use for patients with life-threatening illness. That's the point of these laws. And 41 states have adopted these laws, which is a huge supermajority. And then in 2018, the federal Congress adopted a federal right to try law. Our case is the first time that we have tried to actually forge the path that right to try was intended to construct with regard to a Schedule I substance. And so on behalf of a Seattle palliative care oncology physician and his integrative oncology clinic, the Ames Institute, and a number of the patients that receive care there, we approached the DEA and we said, this doctor on behalf of these patients would like to access psilocybin for RTT, right to try purposes. The DEA had never heard that request before and in a knee-jerk way denied it. And we went into court and we asked the court to mandate that the agency open a path. And what the court said was the DEA hadn't given a sufficiently final answer. So go back to the DEA and get a more final answer, which we have now done. And that court decision came out at the end of January. At the beginning of February, we went back to the DEA and we asked it to give us a final decision so that either it would open a path and the patients could get relief or it would deny it in a way that the court could review it and we would go back to court. So far, we have heard nothing from the agency. And the really sad thing, as your listeners will know, is for patients with advanced cancer and cancer that is advancing as Dr. Agarwal's patients have. And as his patient, Aaron Baldeschweiler, said recently, I am running out of time. 
Okay. Well, that is exactly what metastatic disease is. So we appreciate your attention to all of this. What would typically be the timeline for response from an agency like DEA? Do you have any sense of that? That's a great question. It's a great question to take right to the agency. The agency is known for letting dust gather. We're slow walking. And we intend to keep after the DEA and pressuring it for an answer. And in this case, because the uh, matter was pending in the federal court for almost a year, where extensive briefing was put in front of the agency and its attorneys, the agency knows every single bit of minutiae about right to try law now. We have educated it. And so there should be no delay here. It's had a year to dive deep into the interstices of the law. And there is some complicated law here. For the legal eagles listening, the right to try law was an amendment to the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, which is a law that the agency, the FDA, implements. The DEA implements the Controlled Substances Act. The Controlled Substances Act is not supposed to take supremacy over the FDCA. It's the other way around. And so the fact that the RTT was an amendment to the FDCA, and I realize this is an alphabet soup, it means that the limitations of the CSA should give way here. And the DEA, as the agency implementing the CSA, should create a pathway to access. And that legal argument, which is laid out in hundreds of pages of court filings, has been now digested at the DEA. And it understands that it has an obligation, or it should understand that it has an obligation to make therapeutic access of psilocybin possible. So there's no reason why our request could not be quickly acted upon. Now, having said that, without a bright light of public scrutiny and the interest of federal elected officials in ensuring that duly enacted federal law is allowed to operate as intended, the DEA probably will just let it sit there. And patients like Aaron will never have the benefit of this therapy. And that's just wrong. So we intend to try to shine that bright light of scrutiny. I hope all of your listeners are not only cancer patients, but cancer advocates, and that they will be writing letters to their elected, federal elected officials. And they will be writing letters to the editor of their local paper. Why is the DEA obstructing access to this drug, which has been shown in repeated studies to bring immediate, substantial, and sustained relief of anxiety and depression in the face of terminal illness. You've asked for a formal decision from the DEA and action in that way, but you've also launched another effort, another option for action perhaps at the DEA to deschedule psilocybin. Can you tell us about that? Yes. So in an abundance of creative advocacy, we've offered now two different ways that the DEA can achieve the objective of making psilocybin available for therapeutic use. It can respond to the request for the waiver, which we've been talking about, but we also filed what's called a petition to reschedule, 
And so psilocybin, as mentioned, is currently on Schedule 1 of the Controlled Substances Act, which is the most restricted status. We have asked that it be rescheduled from Schedule 1 to Schedule 2, which would make it available still with quite substantial restrictions, but it would at least make it possible for doctors like Dr. Agarwal to obtain it because, of course, as a licensed and practicing physician, he holds a registration with the DEA to receive and take possession of and administer Schedule II drugs. And so just following up on that, so for patients, how would they know where they can access a Schedule II drug? How does that happen? It has to be a provider who's gone through particular steps to become qualified to distribute a Schedule II. Is that right? right. It, it has to be a provider who has a Schedule II registration. Now, okay. I venture to say, but check with your physician, I venture to say that any practicing physician, and particularly one treating patients with advanced cancer, will have a registration sufficient to administer and prescribe and dispense Schedule II drugs. And in all of this, we're advocating that this be done in the care of a licensed psychiatrist or psychotherapist who provides all of the wraparound services that go with psilocybin uh, treatment. Well, that's such an interesting question. My view as a non-clinical person is that is correct. It would strike me that a patient with advanced cancer may be what would be considered medically complicated or fragile and that you would want a highly trained physician who understands all of the different medications that patient is on and how psilocybin might interface with those medications, et cetera. But interestingly, and really to the side of this conversation, is the fact that there is a burgeoning effort across the country, very much grassroots driven, to see access to psilocybin open for much wider populations. And you may know that in the state of Oregon, for example, once again, Oregon is a pioneer in adopting a novel and interesting new law. It has adopted a law called the Psilocybin Services Act. And starting in 2023, psilocybin will be accessible under state law. It will remain as it is under federal law because the state can only change state law but it will be accessible under state law for anyone over the age of 21 who wants to experience the effects of psilocybin. It will be in a heavily regulatory manner. So they will be receiving services from what's called a psilocybin facilitator, and the state will be determining the kind of training that facilitator would need to have. But at present, there's no requirement that facilitator have any medical or mental health degree, credential, or training. Okay. So Oregon is the state to watch in this case. Yes. All eyes on Oregon. Okay. Let's shift into some of the advocacy work that could be done to expedite all of this. I know that you are a very powerful ally of the metastatic community, and thank you for everything that you are doing. One thing, as a patient, it's frustrating when the need for change falls on the shoulders of the patients and the patients are constantly out there calling for change. We need powerful allies like you to help us make it happen. But that said, 
what can patients be doing to help force a formal decision from the DEA, either a formal decision or a descheduling? I love that question. And I appreciate the reality that people that are going through the experience of advancing illness, including cancer, have a lot on their mind and a lot of burdens. And to then expect on top of those burdens, the burden of becoming advocates does seem extraordinary. And yet so many of you have chosen to be advocates and no one better, no one better to tell the stories. The stories must be told. So Erin Baldeschweiler, one of my clients in this RTT effort, she's young. She turned 50 in the, the year that we've been working on this, but she's got two children at home. She doesn't have reason to believe that she will be here to see them achieve adulthood. That stress and trauma of facing that reality has been a lot to bear. Telling that story is so important because one would hope that a DEA official, a federal elected senator or member of Congress would hear that story and realize that they needed to take action to open a path to a palliative care tool, psilocybin therapy, that has been shown to relieve debilitating anxiety and depression. So that if the reality is that patient does only have a few months left in this lifetime, that those few months can be months of comfort and joy and meaning with loved ones instead of being in a miasma of anxiety and depression. So the storytelling here is so important. And we did just come from a meeting with Senator Patty Murray, who, of course, is a senator from the state of Washington where Erin lives and Dr. Agarwal practices. And she's on the health committee and she's a powerful senator. And we want her to care about Erin and other patients who are facing advancing cancer and who have debilitating anxiety, depression. We want her to care so much that she is banging the door down at the DEA. Why are you not working creatively to create a path to access post-haste? Immediately, Erin doesn't have time to wait. The reason why we voted for these RTT laws is we all recognize that people like Erin don't have the time to wait. Do this today. And so letters to these elected officials, petitions, we've been talking about a petition drive, contacting your local paper. Why isn't the Seattle Times covering this more? It had a big article when the case was filed. We've not seen it right about this since then. Where is the Seattle Times calling Senator Murray and saying, what's your position on cancer patients in your jurisdiction, being able to access this palliative care tool that could bring them such powerful relief. Where are these voices? So you, your members have these voices. Tell the story. Make the demand. Right. On the note of writing letters, is it also powerful and effective to just simply call their representatives' offices? Yes, do okay. all of this, everything that you have in your power to do. And I know that many cancer 
advocates are part of organizations that have staff that can organize these efforts. And so if there's a cancer organization that you're involved with that has a government affairs staff and a communications and public relations staff, they have these elected officials on their speed dial. So networking with the organizations that already exist, that have the staff who know how to do this is another important piece of it because we all have to come together. The wheels of justice are hard to turn. And so we all have to lean in on this. And patients can feel confident doing this because the law is clear, as you've laid out, that the FDA's rule trumps anything that the DEA is responsible for enforcing. And let's remember the DEA has a very narrow scope of authority. Its authority is to prevent abuse and diversion. And that's an important role, but it's a narrow role. And the DEA has stepped way outside its lane in intruding into the practice of medicine, which is what's at stake here. (laughs) And it needs to get back in its lane. And Dr. Agarwal is eager and willing to work with any DEA field office that wants to come and see how he keeps his uh, medication secure from diversion and abuse. And so there's really zero risk here of what the DEA's legitimate concern relates to. And so let's see these federal elected officials demand that the DEA stay in its proper scope of authority not intrude into the practice of medicine where it has no authority. I was involved in a federal litigation many years ago that focused exactly on that question. Uh, The question of where does responsibility for the regulation of the practice of medicine lie? And that very famous case, which is known as Oregon et al. versus Ashcroft Gonzalez went all the way through the federal courts and was ultimately decided by the United States Supreme Court. And the holding at every level was that it is the states that are the primary regulators of the practice of medicine. So when states, as the state of Washington and 40 other states have done, enact a statute that says, we believe that physicians treating patients with life-threatening illness should be able to access investigational drugs for therapeutic use. It is not the place of the DEA, a federal agency, to try to interfere and override that. And we should highlight that the risk of abuse is covered with the certification of distribution of Schedule II drugs. So the providers have to have a system in place for the risk of abuse there. But also, this is a non-addictive compound that's been proven time and time again in clinical trials to be non-addictive, right? Yes. Yes. And there was a wonderful podcast that I'll recommend another podcast. It's quite wonderful. It's called Psychoactive. And on the same day that we filed the petition to reschedule psilocybin off of Schedule 1, the guest on that podcast was Matthew Johnson, who holds an endowed chair for research at Johns Hopkins University, the university from which so many of the psilocybin trials have been conducted and reported. And in that podcast, he said, continuing to hold psilocybin on Schedule 1 is, in his words, absolutely absurd. 
And it's because of what you mentioned, which is the potential for abuse, the potential for addiction is nil, really. And that's been proven time and again. And so some of the nation's most respected researchers with psilocybin have made these kinds of statements. And it's, it is really time to move psilocybin off of Schedule 1. But meantime, while that slower process of rescheduling unfolds, the request for waiver while psilocybin still sits on Schedule 1 for access for RTT purposes should be granted by the DEA. And it can do that quickly with much less process. It has the authority and the discretion to grant that request right now. And it could have done it last week. And Aaron Baldeschweiler could have sat in therapy with Dr. Agarwal last week. And this week, she could have been enjoying these precious moments with her children while her time is running out. And Catherine, when we're talking about the waiver process, the waiver process would allow doctors who are trained to do this. You do therapy before the session with psilocybin. You do the psilocybin session with guides following the clinical trial protocol. And then you have an integration session after. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. All of that would be what would be the emerging standard of care. Right. So it's following a clinical trial design that has been shown to, to have effective results in diminishing cancer-related you know, distress, but it could be outside of the clinical trial. It could be an individual yeah. doctor providing yeah. it. So you don't have to wait for one university half yeah. across the country to do it. Thanks for that question, because it reminds me to say that right-to-try laws are applicable to certain patient population. The patient must have life-threatening illness, and that's determined by the physician in the doctor-patient relationship. And the patient must have exhausted therapies that address the condition that the investigational drug would address, and it hasn't been efficacious. And then finally, the patient must not be able to enroll in a clinical trial with that drug. So, for example, for Erin, living in Seattle and receiving her care in Seattle, she had sought relief of anxiety and depression with other modalities, and they weren't efficacious. And she was not in a location where she could enroll in a clinical trial. There were none in the Pacific Northwest region of psilocybin for relief of cancer-related anxiety and depression. So, all of that makes her an eligible patient. Okay. Catherine, you are a force to behold on this front. Patients really owe you a debt of gratitude for your leadership here because we can't do it all by ourselves. If there were to be a resumption of a legal avenue, let's say the DEA does not take one of the actions that you've laid out and expeditiously, would there ever be a transition to a class action lawsuit where other patients could join I appreciate that question. The goal of our approach to the DEA is to forge a first travel down the road intended to be established by the right to try. And of course, the first time you forge that road is always the hardest. But my view is once the DEA grants Dr. Agarwal 
access to psilocybin for therapeutic use for RTT purposes, that road will be open. And any other physician treating patients with life-threatening illness who has reason to believe that those patients would be benefited with psilocybin therapy can then travel that road. That is how that is supposed to work. We hope that no one else needs to do a case like this, that we will forge that path. And after this waiver is granted to Dr. Agarwal, the next doctor's waiver will be granted as a routine matter. So it would not be a blanket waiver for any provider. Providers would have to apply. Well, one of the interesting suggestions that came up in the lawsuit, and in fact, we had many friend of the court filings. So mm -hmm. these are called amicus briefs. And one of the amicus briefs was by the Goldwater Institute, which I mentioned had been the sponsor of the RTT laws. And their brief says, here's an easy way, DEA, for you to handle these requests. When a physician approaches you, and ticks through the boxes showing that RTT compliance is met. So, for example, the physician would say, I'm a licensed physician providing care to a patient with life-threatening illness for whom I believe access to psilocybin therapy would be beneficial, and I request access for that RTT-compliant therapeutic use and I have received the necessary informed consent from my patient, when the doctor can pick through that kind of a request, that the agency would either grant the request within a seven-day period, or the filing of the request would be sufficient for a supplier to go ahead and supply the physician. That's brilliant, because then... All the information to show RTT compliance has been officially submitted to the DEA. The DEA has a week in which it can respond. And if it doesn't respond, the letter is sufficient. And so something like that could lift any sort of bureaucratic burden right off the shoulders of the agency and yet ensure compliance within the bounds of the RTT laws. Okay. That's really helpful. I know that's getting off into the detail, but yeah. it's really helpful to understand it. Thanks, Catherine. Moving back to rescheduling, is there a rough idea of what a timeline might look like for that rescheduling process, even to get a decision on it? And then yeah. once a decision has been made to actually have it enacted. So I'm very sad to point over to the arena of cannabis, where rescheduling petitions have been pursued for 50 years. Okay. I mean, we're all running out of time. It's not just Aaron that's running out of time. I mean, who has another 50 years for this advocacy? So it can take that long. I would hope it wouldn't take that long here. Again, a lot of it has to do with what is the will of our federal elected officials? The Biden administration in the State of the Union speech that President Biden delivered, he did say, that mental health wellness is going to be a focus of this administration. If that is true and that commitment is real, then rescheduling psilocybin and some other psychedelic substances off of Schedule 1 should be an A number one priority of this administration. And these federal agencies 
are overseen, you know, by the federal Congress. Their purse, their funding, their direction is from the top. And so I hope the Biden administration is listening to this podcast. May it be so. And we'll give some direction to the new administrator at the DEA and the FDA to get busy with this rescheduling petition. Again, there is a place for citizen advocacy. When we filed our petition, we made the request that a public docket be opened so that comment could come flooding in. Citizen advocacy demanding the opening of a public docket and demanding maybe federal congressional oversight of how DEA is handling the rescheduling petition could drive this forward. Thank you. One question with rescheduling. If psilocybin was rescheduled from Schedule 1 to Schedule 2, would that make it easier for researchers to do clinical trials with psilocybin? Yes, much easier. So Schedule uh, 2, currently accepted medical use with severe restrictions. That is what happens on Schedule 2. So yes, it remains very restricted, but it is accessible. And certainly people like Matthew Johnson from Johns Hopkins have recommended uh, that it be on a lower schedule. We made the smallest ask of the DEA in our petition, hoping that it would take that small step. But there are certainly many very knowledgeable clinical researchers that think its place is on a much lower schedule because... uh, Potential for abuse is so very low. It's not an addictive substance. And in fact, many of the ongoing clinical trials show its efficacy in relief of addiction. So it is a potential tool to combat addiction. That's very helpful. Are there researchers who have joined in to this effort to reschedule? Certainly, Matthew Johnson is very outspoken. One of the interesting places for support for opening access to psilocybin for patients with advanced illness does come from professionals in the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine. So for example, Ira Bayak, who is a thought leader in that world and has a very big platform from which he speaks, he is a former president of that organization. And he's been very outspoken in support of opening access to psychedelic-assisted therapy for patients with advanced illness. That's a corner of support that can be incredibly powerful. I'd like to continue to amplify his message on that because he has a big voice and platform and is so highly respected. And people like in the research community, Roland Griffiths, who's the grandfather of the modern-day research, and you see his name on, on nearly every one of these studies about psilocybin therapy for patients with cancer, he joined one of the briefs in our case as an amicus to say, yes, open access for RTT purposes now. These patients don't have time to wait. So we have seen, we've seen support. The Washington State Psychological Association came in as an amicus. So mental health professionals can be powerful allies here. End-of-life advocates, a Washington state group that's called End-of-Life Washington, which is a really wonderful statewide patient support and advocacy organization, came in as an amicus and organized others to come in. End-of-life doulas know how important this is. 
So there are a lot of places where support can be built. So all of us should be, I think, going through our networks and in a mycelial way, connections, and reaching out because the ask is, is, should be easy. Should patients with advanced illness, suffering debilitating anxiety and depression, have access to an investigational drug that brings immediate, substantial, and sustained relief? That's the question. There's really only one answer, right? And it's a resounding yes. Right. Yeah. So let's ask that question everywhere and let's get everyone who says yes to do what they can to bring their network to participate in this effort. I have a question on the pushback and would pharma be on board or opposed? There is a potential fear to be a part of the approval and making this available to patients and a, mar a new market, right? Yes. But I also wonder, there is stigma from the past. And as we see advocacy grow, what will come up as the, the barrier? Will it be past stigma? Is there any politics at play? The war on drugs has been a real phenomenon. And so warriors who remain committed to that war will see this as a new front or a resurgence of a front in that war. However, there's now such accumulation of powerful evidence that abuse and diversion are not real risks here, that those who are able to be swayed by evidence will be swayed. Now, it is always true, and you see this in sort of so many different arenas. Think about vaccine resistance. They're not swayed by data. So people who are never going to be swayed by data exist. And they may be opponents here. I've recently, over the last year, come to know of a group called Brain Futures. And they have a wonderful website and they're quite a powerhouse uh, research and scholarship in the health of the brain, primarily. And they have undertaken a huge landscape study of all of the psychedelic substances that have been in clinical trials. And they've drawn all of that research together into one giant report. That's going to be a powerful tool for those who are swayed by evidence. Mm -hmm. I ask because as patients maybe transition into advocacy on this issue, we want to provide the full landscape and what arguments are you going to come up against? For people just coming into the arena of psychedelic substances and their potential benefits, I always recommend Michael Pollan's best-selling book, How to Change Your Mind. It's on everyone's bedside stand and it should be. It's very accessible. And when you read it, you get a clear understanding of how the stigma arose and what's been required to rise from that and turn it around. And that kind of background, I think, is really helpful for people to understand. But we're in such a different era because when the stigma arose and the door was really slammed shut on research for a long period of time, when the intrepid researchers, including Roland Griffiths, 
started anew with fresh new modern era research, they were incredibly careful and rigorous. And so the modern day research is very rigorous and really cannot be argued with. Catherine, would you be willing to give a summary of why people living with advanced disease should care about psilocybin access? Yes. For people with advanced illness, debilitating anxiety and depression is known to present and be very difficult to resolve. And that reality has been a huge gap in the palliative care toolbox for treating this patient population. Psilocybin has been shown again and again in rigorous clinical trials to provide immediate, substantial, and sustained relief from anxiety and depression so that patients confronted with this diagnosis are able to be present and enjoy the life that they are living as they move forward in that illness right up until the very end. And the stories that the patients tell about the relief that they receive from this therapy is so compelling. So I invite you to take a look. Johns Hopkins has posted some video interviews with patients with advanced cancer who come out of that therapy feeling at peace with where they're at with their illness and what lies ahead. And that changes that entire rest of their life, no matter how long it is. For more information about this case and the petition to open access to psilocybin-assisted therapy, please visit righttotrysilocybin.com. We provide this link and other resources mentioned in this episode in the episode notes on our website, ournbclife.org. This podcast series was produced by Dr. Paula Jane, and this specific episode was produced by Linda Weatherby. The outstanding original music is by Connor Kinsley and expert sound design by Bill Smith. Our executive producer is Christine Benjamin, Senior Director of Patient Services and Education at Share Cancer Support. You can find more episodes of RNBC Life wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe to our News Blast, rate and review us, and look for our unique programming this summer. Season 5 will launch on October 5th. In the meantime, look out for our new newsletter in July and find the full episode notes on our website at rnbclife.org. All feedback is welcome. We would love to hear from you.